Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, welcome church to our Tuesday night church Bible study. Here I am once again hanging out with my two good friends, this fern and also this lamp over here. We've become good buddies over the last few weeks. Hey, tonight, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. And uh, as you're turning there, I just uh, actually said hello to our church uh, accountant, Kelly Watherspoon, and she said she wanted to see me take a sip out of the mug. So today, little fake sip there because there's nothing in this mug at all but it's there for a prop. And on Instagram, I'll tell you what this J stands for if you guys follow us at Calvary Monterey. All right, let's go before the Lord, all joking aside, and ask him to bless our time in his word. Lord, please would you come and strengthen us from Genesis chapter 14. Teach us, Lord, your most holy word and encourage us, Lord. Uh, Whether we're watching or listening to this teaching Uh, during this coronavirus pandemic and we're at home uh, or going about our lives or whether we're listening to this in 15 years from now, we pray, Lord, and ask that you would use your word to strengthen us for life today. We thank you, Lord, and, and, and believe, Lord, in the power of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, uh, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Okay, at this point in the book of Genesis, the book has shifted, as we saw in our last study, to the story of Abraham. In the first 11 chapters, we got a fast-moving look at creation, the destruction of sin uh, when it entered into the world, and the judgment of God through the flood, and also the development of the nations uh, after the flood. But everything in Genesis and in the Bible is pointing toward the cross of Jesus Christ. A deliverer, of course, has been promised. And the question is, when and how will that deliverer come? Now, in Genesis chapter 12, we saw that the family of Abraham is the family that is selected to bring forth that deliverer. I'll remind you of that a passage in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 3. It said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so Abram, he had gone out and began his journey toward the land that God promised. He had taken his nephew Lot with him, and God's blessing was upon uh, both of them, really. Uh, Soon, though, various circumstances and God's sovereign provision forced both Lot and Abram to uh, depart from each other because of their ever-expanding households. Their possessions and flocks and servants began to collide with one another, so it was decided that they must separate from one another. And we saw that in chapter 13. Okay, though Abram was the elder, just a reminder for you, not to mention the one that was chosen by God, uh, he meekly allowed Lot the first choice of land, if you recall that. Lot wanted the green pasture lands of the Jordanian Valley, which left Abram with the land of Canaan. Privately, God told Abram that all the land would belong to him and his descendants, and Abram waited for that day. Okay, it, would be not, it would not be the last time, though, that Abram heard of Lot, however. Uh, and the story that we're going to look at in chapter 14 uh, reunites this pair, Lot and Abraham, together. Now, as a backdrop to this story, I want you to remember some specific things that God had said to Abram. He'd said in Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, which we already read, 
you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, we know that this promise will ultimately come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, but Abram was, a dis, uh, uh, was the ancestor of Jesus, and Jesus would be the one that would bring this blessing upon the whole world. But Abram is going to show us something very important tonight in this passage. He's going to show us that people of God do not expect the blessing of God to flow exclusively from Christ, but also from Christ through their own lives. Abraham looked forward to the cross, and as he did, he took steps to make sure that his own life was a blessing. Now, we look backward to the cross. We look back in history to the cross, and we should also make sure that we take steps to live as blessings to our world. Jesus is the ultimate blessing, of course, but we are to be extensions of Jesus, his body on earth blessing our world. The book of Ephesians is a great example of this blessing and the way that Jesus' headship works itself out in our everyday situation here on earth. And Abram, he serves as a wonderful example as well of how to bless others. So tonight, as we go through, or today, as we go through Genesis chapter 14, I'll explain the text to you, but I also want to draw out for you four ways to bless others from this passage. Okay, but before we look at any of those ways, let's begin looking at the text. It says in verse 1, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, Cato Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war, verse 2, with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these forces joined, uh, all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. In verse 4, it says, 12 years they had served Kedor Laomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Cato Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, and the Emim and Sheva Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then, verse 7, they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then verse 8, okay, I know we're reading about a lot of different places. I'll talk about them in a moment. A lot of places, a lot of kings. But it says in verse 8, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined in battle in the valley of Sidim with Cato. Kedor Laomer, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasser, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings, as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Okay, that was a big mouthful that we just bit off uh, there in Genesis. Okay, let's think about this story. The story that we just read presents to us four powerful kings who join, to, join together to attack five weaker kings. I know it's easy to lose that uh, detail in the midst of everything I just read, but that's the basic of the story. Four powerful kings join together to attack five weaker kings. Now, it's possible that when we read that story, we're already supposed to know which team God is going to support. The first group was headed by the king of Shinar, a place that's already been linked with Babel in uh, chapter 10, verse 10, and in chapter 11. So we might guess that they had positioned themselves already against God. And we'll see this play out throughout the passage. Okay, making alliances with, with other neighboring city nations was common in that era. It was more like 
one major city would kind of be the epicenter of a nation tribe. And so these nation tribes were joining together. That was very common in that era. So this uh, type of uh, joining together or battle was common in that era. And though we don't know much about these kings from archaeology, uh, their names and nation sizes and alliances and wartime uh, tactics all fit that particular era. Okay, it appears that the cities near the Salt Sea, or we know it as the Dead Sea quite often, had been subject to a king named Kedor Laomer for 12 years, but rebelled from him in the 13th year. So Kedor Laomer called on his alliances, and he and the kings who were with him came and routed many people together before finally turning their attention to the five rebelling nations or city-states near the Dead Sea. The kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, or Zoar, they joined together in battle against the stronger kings who were with uh, Kedor Laomer. Okay, it was the stronger four kings against the weaker five kings. Okay, the battle was fierce, apparently, in the Valley of Sidim. Uh, it was so much so that in retreat, the, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, perhaps hid in or fell into, it's difficult to determine from the original language, the bitumen or tar pits that were common in that valley. They were likely dug out and used for construction throughout the region, so it would have provided a bit of cover. But everyone else in that region fled to the hill country. Okay, so that's sort of the setting uh, of this particular chapter. With that, though, let's move on to verse 11. It says, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Okay, the first thing that I want you to see from this passage uh, about being a blessing to others is this point. Number one, you must prepare to extend mercy and grace to others. You must prepare to extend mercy and grace to others. You see, the verses I just read, they're in 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12. They captured Moses' Moses's attention, who was the author, uh, because Lot is now in the scene. Lot is the one who saw the Jordanian Valley uh, with his eyes and based his decision on what he saw rather than God's leading. And now, his life is in trouble. The invading armies have taken him and his possessions, and he is now destined to be a slave in foreign territory. And we're supposed to be unsurprised by this development. Law and Abram show us that making decisions by sight is costly, but walking by faith is beneficial. Already, we learn that Lot's choice, despite appearances, was not the haven that he thought it would be. His bubble was burst when he was brought into captivity. Additionally, God had promised Abram that he would bless those who blessed him and curse those who dishonored him. And Lot had a chance to honor Abram by allowing Abram the first choice of the land. But instead, Lot honored himself by taking what he thought to be the prime real estate. And now Lot finds himself living out the very promise of God. He finds himself in a cursed predicament. Okay, Lot looked with his eyes when making his decision. Okay, he's depicted here in chapter 13 and 14 as a man who did not pray, did not seek God's counsel, and made his decisions based on his feelings, made his decisions based on the flesh. He did not trust the Lord with all his heart. He leaned instead on his own understanding. In all his ways, he did not acknowledge God. So God let him walk out his steps, and the direction was dangerous. Yet, what we're going to see in this passage is Abram, spring into action to deliver his nephew Lot. Again, 
How had Lot gotten into this predicament? It was through his own sin and his own folly. All this was entirely avoidable to Lot. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time because he did not consult God. But rather than sit back and blame Lot for his situation, Abram stepped up to help his nephew. And, and, and here's my point. If you want to be a blessing, an extension of the blessing of Christ to this world, you have to prepare yourself to help those who are entangled in the error of their own ways. Okay, it's one thing to want to help people who have been hurt by the sins of others, but it's a totally different thing to want to help those who have hurt themselves through their own sin. You know, for example, I think every Christian and most human beings, uh, their hearts break or bleed for children who have been abused by others. You know, when you think about those kids, your heart breaks for them and you want to do whatever you can to help them. That is a normal human and also normal Christian response. But we might not feel the same natural warmth or sympathy or compassion for someone who goes into bankruptcy, for example, after a long time or season of habitual overspending and greed. We might not have the same levels of compassion and sympathy, but if you want God to use your life, you must be ready to become an instrument of mercy and grace to people in need. Even when their situation has been caused by their own decisions, as was the case with Lot, you must be ready to help. You see, God has entrusted to us, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, the message of reconciliation. So now we are ambassadors for Christ here on earth. I think one of the reasons this point is important is because we have to watch out for a legalism that grows within us that tells us that some people are deserving of the gospel while others are not. The reality, though, is that none of us deserves the grace of God, and none of us can approach God by our works. Everyone needs mercy and grace, and so we should say that we want to be vessels of Christ's mercy and grace here on earth. Okay, let's move on in the passage, though, to look at Abram's response to the news of Lot's captivity. It says in verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskel and, and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram, verse 14, heard that his kinsmen had been taken, taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Okay, after Lot was captured, the passage tells us, someone actually escaped. And interestingly enough, they ran to Abram to tell him uh, everything that had happened. Uh, he was living in a place by the Oaks of Mamre, uh, the Amorite at the time. And that man, Mamre the Amorite, was brother of two men named Eskel and Aner, who were allies with Abram. So the assumption is that when Abram heard about Lot's capture, he led forth his 318 trained men, but also his allies, to come and go try to recover Lot. Abram divided his forces by night and chased Lot's captors all the way to the north end of Israel, which is what is meant by, or the, or the land of Canaan, which is what is meant by chasing them all the way to Dan in verse 14. Then they went even further than that, another hundred miles to the city of Hobah. Okay, the picture that's being painted is of a man who will stop at nothing to help his family. He's loyal to Lot, even though Lot was not loyal to him. Abram had heard God say that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
And he surely believed that this blessing would start with his own family members. So he thought, I'm going to go be what God asked me to be. I'm going to bless my family. This leads us to the second point that I wanted to share with you today about being a blessing to others. It's this. Number two, you must step out in faith. Number two, you must step out in faith. You see, if you want God to use your life like he used Abram's life to bless others, you must be prepared to step out in faith. Though the odds were against Abram, he ended up being victorious because God was with him. The five kings couldn't stand against the power of the four kings, but Abram could. He brought back, it says, all the captured possessions, including Lot and his possessions. And Abram's victory, of course, would have greatly encouraged the people of Israel when they read the book of Genesis because they were going into the promised land. Uh, so let's think about why this story would have been a blessing to them. Well, first of all, Abram was victorious even though his forces were small in number. We don't know how powerful the allies he brought with him were, but the mention of Abram's 318 trained men is meant to impress us with Abram's household, but also with the small nature of his army against four victorious kings. But the idea is that the battle belongs to the Lord. Okay, to Israel, God had said a result of their obedience to him would be that you shall chase your enemies, Leviticus 26, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. So this story from Abram's early life would encourage Israel that even with small numbers, even with little resources, they could be victorious when they arrived in the promised land. And look, we have a totally different fight. We have no promise about military success or anything like that in the Christian era. Uh, we have a battle that's more spiritual in nature, but we sh too should be encouraged that if we are walking in the light, the power of God resides upon us. He will strengthen us for the spiritual fight that he's called us to engage in. But another reason that they would have been so blessed to read of Abram's story is that Abram was victorious while he was in the land of promise. Did you catch that? You know, he's presented as running all through the promised land, vanquishing his enemies and recovering all that Lot has lost. The original Hebrew, the first use of the title uh, in Genesis, you know, he's called Abram the Hebrew, he, he conquered, and the Hebrew people were eventually enslaved in Egypt, so it would have encouraged them greatly to know that Abram the Hebrew had victory while he was inside the promised land. How would a formerly enslaved and subjugated people win victory for themselves? They weren't warriors, the people of Israel, when they were set free from their captivity in Egypt. They didn't have advanced weaponry, but as long as they fought for and in that promised land, God would grant them victory. And they saw an example of this first in Abram. Look, God has given us territory as well as his people. Our own bodies and our own minds, for one, are territories that God has given to us, but also our relationships and our responsibilities. God's power is there for us to help us be overcomers. Too often, believers succumb to the spirit of the age, and we become victimologists who blame everyone and everything else for our feelings of helplessness, despair, and passivity. Too often, we give up too easily. But God wants you to fight for what belongs to you, to fight for what is yours. Your marriage, your family, your holiness— fight. That land is yours. I'll remind you of Ephesians 6 verse 13, which says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all 
to stand firm. Okay, Abram's act of faith ended up leading to this amazing victory. Look at it again there in verse 16. It says, Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Everything that had been lost is now recovered. This is something we are often shooting for when it comes to acts of faith. Through sin, people lose many things. They lose innocence. They lose relationship. I'm, I, relationships. I'm sure you've known many people who have lost decades of their lives and many opportunities because of sin. But when we fight in faith to help others, we will soon find ourselves helping people recover that which was lost. Jesus can restore lost years. He can grant forgiveness and he can remove the stain of shame. Jesus restores. There's a great example of God's restorative power in the book of Joel. There in Joel, the people of Israel, they fell under the hand of God's judgment because of decades of rebellion against him. And God promised that locusts would come and devour their crops, devour their lands. But he also said that restoration would come. He said in Joel 2.25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. God said, I will restore those years that the locust has eaten. Though we sometimes fall under the consequences of our actions or the discipline of God, God is a restorer. And he's looking for people of faith, people like Abram, to aid in his recovery process in people's lives. Okay, let's move on to verse 17 to see what happens next. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the most high God. Okay, so following uh, Abram's victory over the foreign invaders, he returned with the kings who were with him. And as he came back, there were two appreciative kings who came out to meet him. The first is the king of Sodom, and the second is the king of Salem. Both were thankful to Abram for the way that he defended them and recovered what they had lost in warfare to these greater kings. It's likely that they had been oppressed for many years by the invading king. So Abram is now the hero uh, for, uh, who has delivered them from their struggle. Peace came from Abram's sword. He has become a blessing to these city-states or to these nations, just as God had promised. You, through you, you will be a blessing to many nations. Okay, these two kings, though, that we're going to look at right now, they could not have been more opposite. The king of Salem, he's also referred to as the priest of God Most High in verse 18. He came out with this communal meal, much like communion that we eat of as the church. He had bread and wine. It was indicative of a peace agreement that he wanted to make with Abram. Uh, his name was Melchizedek, and that name means king of righteousness, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, his jurisdiction or his city was Salem, which is likely ancient Jerusalem when you look at Psalm 76, verse 2. Okay, the other king that joined Melchizedek is actually Melchizedek's opposite. Uh, he ruled over Sodom, a city whose citizens were described in chapter 13 as wicked, great sinners against the Lord. All right, so you have these two kings. One is a priest of God Most High. One governs a city filled with wicked people who were great sinners against the Lord. Okay, this meeting uh, between Abram and Melchizedek is one of the most intriguing meetings in the whole Bible. Uh, who is Melchizedek? Where is he from? What is the significance of his interaction with Abram? 
And I'll try to answer some of those questions, but first let's actually read about the meeting itself in verse 19 and 20. It says, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, as, as readers of Genesis, uh, we've learned to admire Abram at this point. His life was meant to be a blessing to the whole world. But now Melchizedek surprises us by being the one to bless Abram. Uh, he's called, again, the priest of God most high. And now he pronounces a priestly blessing upon Abram. Okay, once the Levitical priesthood was established, you know, years after Abram's life, uh, they would deliver what they would call the Aaronic or from Aaron blessing upon Israel. It goes like this in Numbers 6, 24 and 26 is beautiful. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a beautiful blessing. That's what the Levitical priests would say to the people as they bless the people. But many years before Aaron was even born, Melchizedek came along as the priest of God and said over Abram, blessed be Abram by God most high. And he wasn't a mere priest of uh, pagan gods uh, or else Abram would not have responded the way that he did. Uh, we're going to look at that in a moment. No, Melchizedek was a man who knew the God of the Bible and served as his representative on earth. Now, Abram recognized Melchizedek as his spiritual superior. That's why he gave him a tenth of everything in verse 20. This would become more commonly known as a tithe as the Bible developed. And the tithe became a massive part of Israel's worship of God. Here though, Abram was not giving a tithe to Levitical priests because their priesthood had not even been imagined yet during Abram's life. Instead, he gave his tithe to Melchizedek. Now I'll take a, a, a moment right now to admit that, that this passage in particular, the tithe of Abram has had an influence upon my own life. You know, Christians have often asked uh, questions about the giving of the tithe. Is it something that is biblical for a New Testament Christian? And many people have thought that the tithe is not biblical because Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament ceremonial law of God. You know, we don't offer animal sacrifices, the logic goes, because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice to which those animal sacrifice sacrifices pointed. So tithing, some would say, has also been fulfilled in Jesus. But Abram's tithe to Melchizedek predated the law entirely. So while I believe that the Christian mandate actually isn't about a percentage but the Christian mandate, when the gospel gets a hold of your heart, is to, to be as generous as you possibly can uh, with Jesus as our model for what generosity looks like. My personal conviction is that the tithe stands as a principle, partly because Abram practiced it before the law was instituted. So for me, in my family, the giving of a tenth to God has always been the starting place for generosity. And I've lived to survive. I've lived to tell the tale. God has been good. He's provided for us. Okay, but moving on from that, we might be tempted to kind of move on from the Melchizedek passage at this point and think little more about this encounter. He's not going to show up again in the book of Genesis. He's not a big figure in Genesis after this point. And in fact, throughout the rest of the Bible, he's only going to be mentioned two more times. Uh, he's going to uh, be mentioned in Psalm 110 and also in Hebrews chapter 6 and following. The first of those quotations in Psalm 110 came from the pen of David uh, many years after this event. He wrote, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest 
forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, then there's total silence about Melchizedek until the book of Hebrews. There, in the book of Hebrews, Jewish Christians were tempted to abandon Jesus by returning to the sacrificial system that they'd grown up with. Uh, they were downplaying and watering down Jesus's identity. And one objection that they had uh, against Jesus was related to the claim that Jesus was supposed to serve now as our great high priest. How could Jesus be our priest, they would have said. He came from the tribe of Judah. Uh, he was a descendant of David. He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was not a descendant of Aaron. How could he justifiably, without the right genealogy, be our high priest? But the author of Hebrews uh, announced that Jesus has, Hebrews 6 verse 20, become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, quoting from Psalm 110 verse 4. Okay, did you catch that? Did you catch what is happening in those passages? Jesus is not our high priest through Levi's line or from Aaron, but through a connection to Melchizedek. In fact, Hebrews tells us that the Levitical priesthood was inferior to Melchizedek's priesthood because of Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the only person whom Abram ever recognized as his spiritual superior. In a way, the Levitical priesthood gave tithes to Melchizedek's priesthood through Abraham, indicating Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Aaron's. It says this in Hebrews 7, verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is a wild argument that the author to the Hebrews is building. He's saying Jesus is our high priest according to this Melchizedekian order. This has led many to wonder about Melchizedek's identity, uh, with some going so far as to say that he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This speculation that he's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus is further fueled by the following statement in Hebrews. It says in Hebrews 7, verse 3, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, that, that Melchizedek had neither father nor mother or genealogy with no beginning of days nor end of life has caused many people to say that he did more than resemble Jesus. Some think he was appearing, he was Jesus appearing on the pages of Old Testament scripture. Okay, I'll leave it to you to decide if you think that Melchizedek was pre-incarnate Christ or merely a mysterious man who was on the biblical scene for a brief moment. But, but the two figures do share a priesthood. And because of that shared priesthood, they have many similarities. So let's recount a few of their similarities. One, they share the similarity of righteousness and peace. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, but he was also the king of Salem, and Salem means peace, so he was also the king of peace. This is the precise order that Moses used when talking about Melchizedek. He was first known to the reader as the king of righteousness and second known to the reader as the king of peace. This is the order that Jesus brought to humanity. You can't have the peace of God until you've received the righteousness of God. Once the enmity or war between yourself and God is over with by the blood of Jesus, once he deposits his righteousness into your body, you begin to experience his peace. Furthermore, every Christian knows what it's like to live in the unsettled state of unrighteousness. When we walk in darkness, we become uncomfortable because 
the peace of God begins evaporating from our lives. To have a position and participation in God's peace requires God's righteousness. Jesus, like Melchizedek, is the king of both. Righteousness first and then peace. But the second similarity is that they were both king priests. Melchizedek was, was more than, than a king. Uh, he was also priest of God Most High. Okay, One reason that this is fascinating is that you would never find this dual role in ancient Israel. Kings could not be priests and priests could not be kings. Even great kings in Israel could not take the priestly position for themselves. In fact, there was one great Israelite king who tried. King Uzziah wanted badly to serve as a priest, and he was struck with leprosy as a result of overstepping his bounds. Kings came from David's line. Priests came from Aaron's line. And you just couldn't mix the two. But like Melchizedek, Jesus came along as king priest. He is king from David and priest from Melchizedek. This mix in Jesus is absolutely wonderful. You see, when you think about it, what are priests concerned with? Well, priests are concerned with your relationship, humanity's relationship with God. So priests highlight things about sin and forgiveness and your prayer life and personal growth and sanctification. That's what priests are concerned with, growing you. But kings are concerned with building and governing justly and righteously. So kings are interested in justice and defense and expansion and dominion. Priests are concerned with being made good in God's sight, but kings are concerned with doing good in God's sight. And look, Jesus, as our king priest, he is trying to do both things in you and me. But a third similarity between these two is that they are both worthy of sacrifice. Melchizedek returned uh, Abram's sacrifice to him in the form of blessing. You know, Abram brought a gift, and then Melchizedek returned the gift to him by blessing Abram. The blessing of the priest of God Most High was of infinite value. And really, when Melchizedek did this, it served to confirm all the things that God had been saying about and to Abram in chapter 12 and 13. Similarly, anything that we give to Jesus our Melchizedekian priest, he will return it to us in the form of his blessing. You see, when you give your life to Jesus in the form of your time or your energy or your abilities or your treasure, when you give those things to Jesus, he turns it into a blessing that he brings back upon your life. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is worthy of sacrifice. And when you sow to Jesus bountifully, you will also reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. He, in other words, Jesus has a way of returning blessing upon you. And finally, and fourthly, another thing that is similar with these two is that they are both international priests. You see, Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. The Levitical priests, when they came onto the scene, they served God by serving the people of Israel. But Melchizedek had no people and no nation that he'd come from. He was without, as Hebrews says, genealogy. He was on earth as a priest for anyone who wanted God. Uh, interestingly enough, this might be part of the reason why it's stand out-ish that he is from Salem, which is Jerusalem. It could have been that when Israel established the temple at Jerusalem, they should have been able to go back to the original priest and realize that he was international in nature. The first priest to serve God in Jerusalem was there for anybody in all of the world who wanted to know God. Jesus does the same thing. Like Melchizedek, he is an international priest. His ministry is not confined to Israel, but is designed to break through to every tribe and nation and language. 
Though the Christ would come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he would be for all the citizens of the earth, and whoever believes in him may come to him. Okay, now after we've noticed all these similarities between Jesus and Melchizedek, I, I want to focus on the simple reality of our Genesis story here. Here's Abraham. He's used by God to deliver Lot from his captivity. He's a rescuer, right? That's what we've been saying today. He extended grace and mercy to his nephew. He stepped out in faith. But here he was in a relationship with the priest of God Most High. And an exchange took place between the two. If you want God to use your life, here's the third thing that I wanted to point out to you. If you want to bless others, number three, have a constant exchange with God. Have a constant exchange with God. Okay, let me encourage you with this today. Like Abram, you can encounter the priest of God Most High. Jesus came out to you, not because of a victory that you won, but because of the victory that he won. He is the king of righteousness and peace, and he deposited righteousness into your account if you're a believer today so that you could be at peace with God. He's a king priest, concerned with purifying your life, but also with establishing his good rule and reign through your life. He is worthy of sacrifice. You cannot outgive Jesus. Even when you lose your life for his sake in the gospels, you find your life. He abundantly gives to the giver. And he is the priest who brought the international message of the gospel. Everyone must know him. And just as Abram exchanged with Melchizedek on this day, I encourage you to have a constant exchange with God. He has paved the way for you to enjoy him. Access is yours and the possibilities are immense. Don't neglect this great relationship. Like Abram, give yourself to the Lord, especially if like Abram, you want God to use your life to help others. To live a ministry life, you'll need the healing salve of a personal relationship with God. Okay, before I let you go and end this study, let's look at the last movement of our passage together in verse 21 to the end of the chapter, verse 24. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Okay, after their encounter with Melchizedek, or his encounter with Melchizedek, Abram meets the king of Salem, uh, uh, or excuse me, the, the king of Sodom. Uh, and the king of Sodom made Abram a tempting offer right here in this little passage. He said, Give me the persons, you know, all the people that you recovered, give them to me, but you can take the goods for yourself. Uh, he, in other words, he wanted to give Abram the wealth of Sodom because he had saved the people of Sodom. Now, Abram seems to have sensed that this was a test. Remember when he went to Egypt and Pharaoh blessed him with herds and flocks and finances? Uh, this seems to have been a different situation in Abram's mind. Sodom, as we saw in chapter 13, verse 13, was already known for its unrighteousness. Abram could not have the wicked king of Sodom saying, I was the one who made Abram rich. Look at what Abram is. I'm the one who made him that. Now, Abram had sworn that to the Lord, apparently. That's what he said in verse 22. And since God is the possessor, he said, of heaven and earth, and since Abram had God, he felt that he didn't need Sodom's wealth. I have the God who possesses heaven and earth, so why do I need your stuff? So he, he said, just let my young men, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them eat, let them take their share, 
but Abram himself would not touch Sodom's spoils. Okay, I think this is meant to be seen as a test that Abram passed. You know, he would have been tempted to build his household and his empire with means outside God's blessing. But here he resists that temptation. He would instead let God be his provider. He would not compromise in order to maintain his household. Okay, in closing today, Abram became a template, it seems, for future believers who want to be similarly used by God. Part of the reason Abram was such a blessing to Lot was because of his unshakable reliance upon God. He refused to receive support from the wrong places. This is the fourth and final thing I wanted to show you today. If you want to be used by God, you must, number four, refuse support from the wrong sources. Refuse support from the wrong sources. You know, we have to do the same thing if we want God to use our lives. The temptation to cut corners and get the job done without God is ever-present. The pull of riches is constant. Jesus called them the deceitfulness of riches. They just lie to you and tell you that you'll be satisfied if you could have them. But faith looks beyond the temporal and into the divine. Faith does not turn to the world for guidance or answers or companionship or provision. Faith receives its support from God. So Abram was a blessing to Lot. God had made him into a blessing, and God wants to do the same through you. He wants his gospel of mercy and grace to flow through you. He wants you to step out in faith, battling for others. And he wants to draw you into constant exchange with himself. And he wants you to refuse support from the wrong places and instead turn to him for everything you need. Oh God, would you please take this word and use it in our lives. And Lord, would you help us to become blessings to others. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.